You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano in today for Kevin Cirilli. And joining me, as usual, is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis. And later we're going to be talking to Representative Brian Stile, who represents Wisconsin's first congressional district. And as the first full week of the Biden administration gets underway, the president has been focused once again on the uh, COVID pandemic and also the economy. Specifically this afternoon, he took a first few steps in his campaign to build back better. He spoke to reporters not that long ago this afternoon as he signed an executive order focused on strengthening American manufacturing by making it harder for government contractors to buy goods that are not made in the United States. And I believe we have sound on that. I don't buy for one second the, uh, that the vitality of American manufacturing is a thing of the past. American manufacturing was the arsenal of democracy in World War II, and it must be part of the engine of American prosperity now. And while that was going on at the other end of Capitol Hill, the Senate gaveled in to session to consider some of Biden's cabinet appointments. And in just a few hours, the House impeachment managers are expected to walk over the article of impeachment against President Trump. Uh, impeachment is expected now to begin the week of February 8th. And over the weekend, we heard from Republicans who oppose it on procedural grounds. We heard from Democrats who are supporting it. And of course, we also heard from the new majority leader, Chuck Schumer, who spoke out about the enormous amount that the Senate has on its agenda, in addition to, but primarily led by impeachment. And I believe we have sound on that as well. There are three essential items on our plate. The trial of President Trump, now that the House has impeached him, bold, strong COVID relief, and approving uh, the president's cabinet. 
So joining me today to talk about all of this is Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor, partner at Stone Court Capital, former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. And we want to ask him all about what's going on in Arizona these days, of course. And also Roger Fisk, a Democratic strategist, longtime president, President Obama's aide and a principal of New Day Strategy. So welcome to you both. It's really good to talk to you. And Rick, let me just ask you the question that keeps coming to my mind as I listen to Chuck Schumer. Can they walk and chew gum at the same time? Can they get all of this done as we await this delivery of the article of impeachment against the former president? Thanks, Jeannie. And, uh, and it's exciting times because we see so many things happening in such a rapid clip. I mean, Joe Biden took office with a series of executive orders last week that, that started to roll back some of Donald Trump's activities uh, as president and chart his own course. And, and then um, today is a good example of sort of running into yourself. I mean, Joe Biden had a very clear effort by his White House to push out the fact that he wants to preserve and create American jobs. And it was sort of a jobs day. But when you look at Capitol Hill, What's Chuck Schumer talking about? A Trump trial, COVID relief, and the Biden cabinet. I mean, no mention of the president signing this order uh, or creating more jobs for working class Americans. And so I think they're going to find there are a lot of communication conflicts inherent between the executive branch and the Hill, but this is all one party rule. And so they're going to have to do a lot to communicate a message a day uh, with all this activity going on. Yeah, and, and, and you make such a good point because we didn't hear from Capitol, um, from Capitol Hill in terms of what the president was doing this afternoon. So, Roger, it's so good to talk to you. Can I ask you the same question? Can the Senate and the House, Congress as a whole, take on and tackle all of the things that Chuck Schumer has talked about? Well, first off, Jeannie, thanks so much for having me. And it's great to be here with Rick as well. I agree with him. I mean, ideally... Uh, and to echo a little bit and build on Rick's points, a new administration wants to come in and create a center of gravity, right? They want to create a framework so that they can start to do a legislative rollout, some of the rollbacks that you've already mentioned, et cetera. That becomes extremely difficult. It's easy uh, to look at impeachment and say, well, it's a different branch of government and it's going to be happening down Pennsylvania Avenue and et cetera. But let's face it. I mean, it's a centrifugal force of, impeachment is just going to pull everything into one woolly, unyieldy kind of mess. And as you see kind of the title pushing and pulling on a daily basis once the trial is up and running, that is going to bleed over into other dynamics. And ultimately, it's going to make it much more difficult for the administration to really create that framework where they can start to control the time frames where they can start to roll out specific messaging on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis and things like that. So ostensibly all these folks, you know, sign up for when it's so that they can do these jobs when it's difficult and it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. And, and Roger, just to follow up on that, it, I something I have been struggling with myself is 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 it in the best interest of the country as a whole to pursue this trial at this point with everything else going on? And it's something that when I talk to Democrats behind the scenes, they struggle with it as well, but publicly will state that there's got to be accountability here. What's your view on that? 
You know, it's it's no one, uh, and I said this during the last impeachment, I mean, no one on the Democratic side wakes up in the morning and says, you know, what a wonderful day we get to have an impeachment trial. This isn't welcome news by anyone. Um, but at the same time, you know, the behavior that we saw, the president's infractions are not just about January 6th. There's a reason why everyone showed up on that day, and I know we don't want to relitigate that all here necessarily. But when you look at it in the context of a separation of powers, and if I were the speaker, I was the Senate minority leader then and the majority leader now, you cannot let that stand. And and in addition to that, some of the Republicans' postures, and I you know mean more coming from the more kind of jihadist wing of the GOP, is that basically they were part and parcel of an effort that you know slapped Congress in the face, and now they expect to be apologized to, and that doesn't help things, you know, kind of resolve or get towards this kind of word unity that everyone's throwing around. So uh, it's, it's, it's going to be incredibly difficult. But I think uh, and just within the context of a co-equal branch of government, you can't allow a president to behave. If, if, if President Obama spoke in front of a Black Lives Matter march and got folks all riled up and they marched down to the Capitol, I think the Zeldins and the Jordans and the Grams of the world would be singing a much different but much different tune. Yeah, I think it's a good point, Roger, and, and welcome to the show. It's great having you here. And uh, and I think the point you made just now about uh, unity is a really good one. Uh, maybe the most unified the House has been in a bipartisan fashion in a long time is to have those 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment cross the aisle and side with the Democrats. And, 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 and I do think it's worth noting that I, I agree with you that Democrats aren't waking up every day wondering how they can impeach the President of the United States. Uh, nor are Republicans when 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 they were doing the same thing with Bill Clinton. It was thrust upon them by the presidents themselves. Their conduct is what caused it to happen. It wasn't that Congress just conjured up this stuff. And and so I do think that you are torn, right? There's no easy answer to the fact that you're going to put impeachment on the docket at a time when there's a big Biden agenda that needs to be dealt with. But at the end of the day, history has to run its course. Uh, there, we'd be sitting here if they didn't impeach him saying, wow, how could they let him get away with this? They attacked the Capitol. Right. I mean, like, there's right, just an right. opposite and equal reaction. It's just the physics of politics. Yeah, so I think, I think the procedural kind of answer to that is to just go straight at it, go at it quick, um, try to get it over basically in the course of February, let it be and play out the way it's going to be, and then move on so that, that Biden can then get back to kind of creating that center of gravity so that they can get back to their agenda and things like that. Once this is up and running, I mean, even just look at the media oxygen every day, right? It's, it's, you're going to go from 10 or 12 minutes, back to Jeannie's point, about the president's agenda to three or four minutes, and as Rick knows well from the campaign, when you don't have that kind of footprint in the nightly news, you're just mathematically decreasing your capacity to persuade people. And Rick, let me just ask your opinion on this, because one of the things I keep hearing from Republicans is that even Republicans who want to, the, pres the former president to be held accountable are concerned that this will make him something of a martyr on the right. Do you see any of that as, as a realistic uh, you know, outcome of this? Look, I mean, one thing this president knows how to do is become a martyr. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that that he'll try. Uh, I do think it poses a bigger dilemma 
uh, for Republicans than for Democrats. Uh, Democrats have all this uh, activity they want to do. It's, it's relatively positive in its outcome in the sense that we're trying to do things on COVID. We're trying to do things on the cabinet. We're trying to do things on job creation. Uh, the Republicans have to deal with the, uh, the fact that Donald Trump is now out of office, unhinged, and, and, and is going to impact their party for the rest of their lives. If the, if, if, and, and what they do in the United States Senate right now will will have a huge impact on that. And so the pressure really is on the Republicans to come to grips with how do we deal with this guy, even in abstention. They all just wanted him gone. This is their worst nightmare that they get to spend the entire month of February talking about Donald Trump. And, and, and of course, what happened over the weekend, which we're going to talk about, is uh, in Arizona. And, of course, the news today that Rob Portman um, is not going to run for re-election. Some of the many signs of the changes, if you will, in the Republican Party. And also, of course, President Biden just a few minutes ago saying that despite what Republicans are saying, he does not want to cherry pick this COVID relief bill. He wants to try to go for all or nothing. So I really want to get Rick and Roger to weigh in on that, because to me, that is going to be one of the biggest challenges here. So I am Jeannie Shanzano, and we are on Bloomberg Radio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli, and here with Rick Davis, Roger Fisk, and looking forward to speaking in a few moments with Representative Brian Stile from Wisconsin. We're not going to ask him about the Packers last night, but I did want to just talk, as we were just addressing a bit the issue of impeachment. We expect the impeachment managers to be delivering the article of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate in the next few hours. And today, President President Biden and his administration are focusing on COVID relief and the economy. And in that context, today we heard once again from Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who said that over the weekend, the president and his team had been reaching out to lawmakers. But when she was asked by a reporter who specifically he, the president had been talking to and what the nature of those conversations were, she wouldn't say despite a, a real focus on transparency. And I believe we have sound on that. The president has been personally engaging and engaging with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, we're not going to read out all those calls for you because uh, those are private conversations. So, so Roger and, and Rick, Roger, let me ask you, um, is the Biden administration going to find itself in a bit of a quandary here with the focus on transparency and yet obviously not wanting to negotiate some of this out in public? 
Well, I don't I don't think that's a problem. I mean, first off, they're making the White House visitor log public again, which is a breath of fresh air. So we can see who's actually coming and going. And the president actually has public events every day, as opposed to the former administration, where there was day after day of no public events. Um, but uh, what you're Roger, saying, you're, you're not you know, you're not missing the tweets. Come on. <laughs> no one is. Uh, I, I can do without all the, the shrapnel of grievance every day. Thank you. Um, no one is going to say I'm in the middle of discussing a potential compromise or deal with Senators X, Y, and Z, right? I think when, when something like that is done and it's time to roll it out, then then it makes sense to, to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm proud to announce that six senators are going to you know back me on this or that. But it would be very unusual and, and unwise for someone in the middle of, you know, negotiations uh, as, as critical as these, especially on the time frame that we've already touched on once or twice, to give kind of a daily anatomy of I left a voicemail for this person and then they tried me back and I did you know, that kind of granularity, I don't think necessarily equates to transparency. Yeah, Roger, I think I think you're exactly right. And remember, too, we're, we're just leaving an administration that really had no policymaking process. You know, they didn't consult Congress. Uh, mostly it was tweeting the policy and then everyone had to run around and say, oh, my God, this is what the president has just said. We've got to we've got to go create a policy that makes good on the tweet. And so this administration is getting back to sort of the cabinet has a role in making policy. The Hill has a role in making policy. It's a sausage making process. You don't want that particularly out in public until at which point in time you got the votes lined up and the policy has been well vetted and then you put it out there. And so it is a complete departure from where we've been for the last four years. And, and so, Rick, let me follow up on that with you, because we heard this afternoon uh, President Biden, when he was asked, he said he does not want to cherry pick this COVID relief bill. He wants to go all or nothing. And we also heard Jen Psaki again today in the context of talking about the COVID relief bill, the amount of concern on the Hill amongst partic- all lawmakers, particularly Republican, about the price tag of this proposal at almost $2 trillion. And before you respond to that, let's just hear what Jen Saki had to say. I think we have sound on that. We are going to hit a cliff, an unemployment cliff, uh, unemployment insurance cliff, I should say, in March, where millions of people won't be able to have access to unemployment insurance. Uh, we're going to hit a point where we won't have enough funding for vaccine distribution. So, Rick, so how are they going to surmount this on the Hill if the president is unwilling to break this apart? We also heard Marco Rubio and others over the weekend talking about this. Yeah, it's a negotiation. I mean, he certainly wants to go in with the strongest case that he can be made. Uh, We saw what happened at the end of the last term when uh, the Republicans had some successes starting to try and piece together and pull apart the Pelosi proposal that was similar to the Biden proposal. Now, uh, they they wound up getting, you know, less than a third of what they were really bargaining for. So uh, it's a very competitive environment. Republicans don't want to spend one point nine trillion after just agreeing to a $900 billion deal. So uh, how do you get there? You start with your strongest position. I'm all in. I need all these things. These are all important to the economy and to the health of our country. And now let's get down to the hard bargaining. Uh, The House is going to deliver him whatever he wants, and then he's going to have to really squeeze the, the Senate to get at least as much as he can. And my guess is Biden will approach it the same way my great uh, 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 idol, uh, Ronald Reagan, did, which was the 80-20 rule. Give me 80 percent of my package and we'll call it a victory. And I think that uh, that he's starting out the process with all the chips still on the table. And, and Roger, do you agree with that assessment? 
Absolutely. I mean, the essence of democracy is is compromise and persuasion, right, which we've essentially touched on in a number of ways already. The president has to go out and persuade, you know, uh, members of the House and members of the Senate that this is in the best interests of their constituents. They push back um, and, you know, embrace their um, their uh, fiscal discipline values that somehow took a long four-year nap. And, uh, and then somewhere in the middle of all that, um, I, one thing about Rick's 80-20 rule, I think 80-20 now gets you primaried is what you get at the end of that. So um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I think we the, the zero-sum game. But that's really the challenge, right, for the Biden administration is can they get back to some kind of environment where a handful of Republicans can meet them somewhat in the middle and not get their heads chopped off and, by the more absolutist part of their party. Yeah, and we're going to ask Representative Brian Stile just that very question when we get back. And I love the phrase, they took a long-term nap on the fiscal aspect. That's a great phrase, Roger. This is Bloomberg, and I'm Jeannie Shanzano. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli. And joining us now on Bloomberg Radio is Representative Brian Stile. He was elected in 2018 to represent Wisconsin's first congressional district. Used to be the district of Paul Ryan, but now it is Brian Stile's district. And it's it's a beautiful area. And here is with me, as always, is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis. So, Representative Stile, thanks so much for joining us. And I wanted to start by asking you about something I've heard you say in the last few days, which has to do with the impact of the Keystone Pipeline cancellation on your constituents. Can you talk a little bit about your view, not only of what the impact is, but what the Republicans are proposing to balance the competing importance of obviously jobs, but also protection of the environment? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Joe Biden's decision on on day one to terminate the Keystone Pipeline had a lot of implications. On that day, thousands of people lost their job. Those are the men and women who are working building the pipeline. Sometimes you think that the pipeline running through North and South Dakota wouldn't impact Wisconsin jobs, but states like Wisconsin, we make things. So we had hundreds of workers from the state of Wisconsin who were working on the Keystone Pipeline who were laid off on day one of Joe Biden. So there's a real direct impact. There's also the impact that this has from a national security standpoint, making us less energy independent, kind of that North America energy independence. and is making us more dependent on Russia, more dependent on Venezuela, more dependent on the Middle East. We need to be addressing that from that standpoint. And some of the the discussions regarding this pipeline, the environmental impacts, are very misleading. This oil and gas is still coming into the United States as it does today. It's just coming in a much less efficient manner, coming in on surface transportation, rail transportation. That's less efficient, less environmentally friendly uh, than a pipeline would be. Congressman Siles, uh, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, And you have been very outspoken. I mean, uh, day one of the Biden administration, this was, as you pointed out, one of his first acts, and uh, and you were on it. Uh, I'm curious uh, how you see the dynamic. We've been talking about uh, literally since the election, unity, unity, everybody wants to have unity, but but elections have consequences. It's the Biden agenda now. You've got a Republican caucus, but real people affected by this pipeline in your district. And, and how do you see all this working out? I mean, are you in touch with 
Democratic leadership on the House side? Is there a way to communicate um, uh, with the Biden administration on the needs to preserve these jobs? I mean, he just came out today and said, hey, buy America, right? I mean, we've got an executive order now to do that, uh, very similar to what Trump's echoed. Uh, are, are you going to go out and announce, hey, I like buy America. It's going to help the people in my district. Yeah, we got we got to come back to the table and have kind of adult conversations as to what this means. This is a multi-billion dollar private sector infrastructure investment. Often in Washington, D.C., at Capitol Hill, people are talking about how do we get big infrastructure done? One of the things that's untapped right now is really leveraging private sector infrastructure investments, such as the Keystone Pipeline. That's going to be absolutely critical. The other is We need to have adult conversations about the overall environmental impacts of many of these types of projects. I think many people are misled to believe that by shutting down the building of the Keystone Pipeline, that these oil and gas reserves in Canada will no longer be coming to market. That's just misleading. It'll still be coming. It's just going to be on surface transportation, in particular on rail, which is just less environmentally efficient or effective to get it to market. And so we need to have some adult conversations on this. It's good to have the words of unity. That's what I'd like to be working towards, in particular as it relates to infrastructure investment, getting people back to work. But we also have to have the actions match those words. And so, Representative, let me drill down on that for a minute. So so you're talking about a need for bipartisanship um, to succeed in all of these areas, whether it's the Keystone Pipeline and addressing this issue in infrastructure. In terms of the issue of the Keystone Pipeline, Is there a plan that you would get behind in terms of balancing those claims again for both retaining jobs, moving jobs to say green, clean energy jobs, and or protecting the environment while doing that at the same time? Do Republicans have a way forward on that? Yeah, I think there's an overall all of the above approach. So moving forward with the Keystone Pipeline, I don't think prevents us from also moving towards green energy jobs. There's lots of green energy jobs in Wisconsin. There's companies that are involved in windmill production. That's true across the country. That's good. That's positive. We should continue that approach. But that doesn't mean that we should then shut off our opportunities to make sure that we're taking advantage of a North American supply of oil and gas so that we can be less dependent on countries like Russia or Venezuela or areas like the Middle East for our energy supply. And so I think there is some middle ground here, but we need to have that adult conversation about what cutting off this type of infrastructure investment in the United States means and what signal it's sending to the markets long term as other companies are coming to the table and considering significant private sector infrastructure investment this is sending shivers down the spines of other companies looking to put workers to work. Congressman, you make a really good point. Everybody's been talking for years about infrastructure. Ah, oh, this is what we need, a jobs bill. We need infrastructure. You know, the country needs it. It's crumbling, whether it's, uh, you know, transport of hydrocarbons you talk about or roads and bridges. Uh, but we don't ever seem to get off on it. Um, um, and, and, and your district obviously have people involved in the pipeline business. They're directly impacted when those permits are pulled. Uh, but everybody's district has somebody who would be positively affected if we could actually get 
a, a jobs bill through Congress and signed by a president that actually unleashes the might of the private sector and the public sector working together on infrastructure. What's it going to take to get that done this year? I mean, moving beyond just a Keystone Pipeline and thinking positively about everyone seems to want it, Democrats and Republicans alike, but what's it going to take to actually do it? Everybody seems to agree on one of the two sides of the ledger. So on the side of the ledger that we need to make significant investments in U.S. infrastructure, I think there's broad bipartisan agreement. As you get to the other side of the ledger, how do you pay for it? That's where things fall apart. And that's why I don't think the American people have had an open, honest conversation with their elected officials as to what are the real options on the table. Obviously, one of them, private sector investment, not billing the taxpayer anything, significant investment like the Keystone Pipeline. Other opportunities are to cut spending elsewhere, to look for efficiencies as to how we deliver government services. And on the other side, you have people advocating tax increases, uh, whether or not that's corporations or individuals. Uh, But we need to have the adult conversation of where are the funds going to come from to pay for this type of investment? And that's where I come out and say, when you have private sector infrastructure investment on the table, ready to go, jobs ready. It's a terrible decision to pull the rug out from underneath those types of jobs on day one of an administration. And let me just refocus the attention a little bit on the COVID relief bill, if we can. Can you and your colleagues get behind this $1.9 trillion package that the Biden administration has proposed? And if not, what areas would you like to see stripped out of that or changed, if you will? That's a big price tag that the Biden administration has put on the table out of the gates. I think what we're going to need to do is look and say, how can we tailor that to help people who've been negatively impacted through coronavirus through no fault of their own without providing broad brushstrokes of relief that just burden taxpayers in the long run? So how do we target this to those people who have been impacted, thinking your restaurants, your maybe your waitress or your cook? to make sure that those jobs are there when we come out on the other side of coronavirus when we defeat it, which we ultimately will, but not provide a windfall for those individuals who've not been economically impacted in the same manner. Tightly tailoring this is what's going to be critical. The other area that I think there is going to be broad agreement on is accelerating the development and deployment of the vaccine. So as we look at the health side of this, making sure our nurses and doctors have the resources they need making sure we're rolling out the vaccine as fast as possible. I do believe that there's going to be broad bipartisan support for those funds when they're called for. Congressman, uh, you, you really, it, it heartens me, uh, having grown up in the Reagan revolution of smaller government, fewer deficits, um, to hear a Republican actually worried about deficits and spending again. I, kudos to you. Uh, but that being said, I mean, we just came out of an administration that, that arguably uh, probably added to that deficit more than any other single president in history, and, and not not only because of COVID. And so the question I would have is COVID spending bill, uh, infrastructure we were just talking about. Uh, Janet Yellen goes to the Hill, a former Federal Reserve chair, and says, we need to go big. Is, is there appetite on the Republican side these days in the House to go big and spend some money? I think there's less of an appetite. I think it was critical early on during the COVID. You know, if you think back to that March and April period where we had government entities doing aggressive closures of large segments of our economy to make sure that we flooded the market with liquidity, that we made sure individuals had the resources so they they could pay their grocery bill, their rent, and their mortgage. And in the speed that was required to do that last spring, 
required this flood of, of investment into the United States. Now we're getting towards, knock on wood, coming closer to the tail end of the coronavirus as the vaccine becomes more available, as we learn more about the disease. What we now need to be thoughtful of is making sure that we're tailoring this to those individuals who are impacted, but getting ourselves back on a long-term fiscal trajectory where we can ultimately get ourselves back in a way where we're not continuing to go further and further down this path towards debt. Representative Sal, we keep hearing about this division in the Republican Party and concern as we await the article of impeachment to be delivered to the Senate that President Trump has divided the party. As a up-and-coming leader of this party, what do you see as the future of the Republican Party, God willing, we get beyond this COVID pandemic? Where do you see the party heading at this point? I'm a big tent Republican. I think President Trump brought a lot to the table. I think he was a terrific advocate for lowering taxes, lowering regulatory burdens. What I think we need to do is come together in the in the huddle and the Republican side and put forward plans that address the big issues in the day. We need to lay out how we're going to get workers back to work, things like the Keystone Pipeline, private sector investments. We need to talk about how we're going to keep America healthy, how we're going to make sure that individuals are able to make healthcare decisions with their doctors, how we're going to defeat the coronavirus. We're going to have to put forward our policies about how we're going to keep our community safe, how we're going to keep our country safe, and lay forward those conservative cornerstone policies, come out of this huddle as a team, and work to advance the ball. This infighting that occurs inside the huddle is not productive for the party, it's not productive for the conservative movement, and it's not productive for the American people. And, and Representative, I noticed you're using a lot of football language there, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how you are holding up. And I will tell you, my sons are big Patriots fans who are not no longer fans of Tom Brady. So I had a similar sort of night as you may have, just probably not as bad. But how are you holding up? <laughs> Man, it was a disaster of a Packer game yesterday. I'm telling you, that's probably why I'm using all my football analogies today. <laughs> But watching the Packers not go for the touchdown with two minutes left with the ball with one of the best red zone offenses in the league just breaks your heart. And you wish you could have that play call back and you could go for the touchdown on fourth and goal. (laughs) There's always next year, Congressman. There's always next year for the Packers. That's right. And so, Congressman, we want to thank you so much and let you go mourn a little bit more. I know you, it's going to be a rough year till you wait for them to come back. But it was really delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much. And we still have Rick Davis and Roger Fisk, and we are looking forward to talking to them more. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
about some of what Representative Stile had to say about what we can expect for the future of the party. Particularly, I'm interested to hear what they have to say about what happened in Arizona over the weekend. And and Rick is an expert in in all things Arizona. And then, of course, about Rob Portman's decision not to run for re-election and what that says about the future of the party. Um, So do we, Christine, do we have Roger still here? (laughs) Thank you so much. So Roger, (laughs) Roger, I couldn't hear you for a minute, so I wanted to make sure. But let me just ask you, um, we heard the representative talking a little bit about the future of the party post-COVID. What was your take on the decision of Portman not to run and what this means for the party going forward? And understanding that you are not a Republican, but as you view it from your your, uh, vantage point. Yeah, Roger, go first. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's, that's very courteous of you, Rick. Uh, if my memory serves me, and, and, and Rick could probably tell me, I believe he was a member of Congress before. He was also the U.S. Trade Rep, and now he's been in the Senate. You know, I think Mr. Portman has given plenty of his time and energy to this country, and he deserves some time probably with his grandkids, I'm going to assume. I wish he had held the center a little bit more, you know, everyone on both sides always vilifies the center, and it gets back to some of that the, the primary and kind of um, issue that we touched on earlier. But it's really the center that defines, you know, the trajectory of America, because ultimately our civic life is driven by folks roughly between the 40-yard lines to build on your on your conversation about football towards the end of your um, interview with the representatives. So I, I wish, I mean, and, and, uh, and also use uh, Senator Portman to talk a little bit about the representatives' comments you know, I've never seen people, you know, kind of so willingly surrender the pillars of their brand as, as quickly as the GOP did in the last four years, because now it's lovely to hear folks make noise about fiscal discipline. I'm assuming at some point we're even going to hear about character and, and family values or something, but those have been completely surrendered over the last few years. So I would much rather, you know, deal with the traditional labor, liberal, fratricidal dynamic that we have on our side of the aisle. Than the, than the folks on the Republican side, because figuring this stuff out and trying to keep those MAGA folks under the tent and rowing in the same direction and stuff, I wouldn't want to be in charge of that. Roger, you missed the one most important aspect of Rob Porter, and this is the quiz question that you can never fail again. He was serving as the stand-in for uh, Barack Obama in John McCain's debate prep. So we learned everything well, we needed to know about those debates about, by and Rob no, Portman. <laughs> and no one can argue the physical resemblance. And nobody can argue the physical resemblance. You know, look, Rob, I mean, this is what I was trying to suss out from Congressman Style. I mean, like, it's one thing to uh, be a fiscal conservative, a hawk. Um, you know, spending issues are, are important for both parties, right? And and yet um, we've seen just profligate spending uh, uh, for— uh, going all the way back to to George W. Bush's administration, right? Nobody has pumped the brakes on spending for a long time. And and by the way, I think it it, it probably inures to the deficit of Republicans who had the high ground on that issue with a lot of voters, a lot of suburban voters that we lost in the last election. So um, uh, kudos to him to try and get back in the game. But at the end of the day, I mean, when you hear people like Janet Yellen, who's, who's very important to the debate on the economy, saying we've got to go big now and then to have, you know, wait a minute. I mean, where are we going to find the money for that? Well, it's the same place we've been finding the money for the last two decades, you know. Uh, and, and so is there no more important time for the economy to create jobs than at a time when we have the worst job environment on a global basis in history? 
And so exactly. um, I, I really I, I question whether or not a year from now when he's running for reelection, somebody isn't saying, wait a minute, fiscal conservatism in the middle of a worst uh, 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 jobs environment we've ever had. Um, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, the, the real question is, is, are we closer to the beginning than we are to the end? Right. And he actually referenced this. And that's really when my ears perked up, you know, for example, just because the economy, quote unquote, opens, like I have, I have some neighbors, they have two young girls, Sylvia and Maria, just because maybe the, the movie theaters open or a mall opens, that's not to say that consumers are going to have the confidence to walk through those doors, right? It's not going to be like a light switch where we just kind of open back up for business. Look at commercial real estate, for example. Look at uh, travel and tourism. Those things, for the time that it's going to take for this water to work its way through the hose is going to be a couple years. And so when the, when, the, when, the, when the representative talked about this, is that it's going to just kind of be binary, like we're closed and then, uh, you know, two weeks from Monday we're going to be open. I really don't think that works because ultimately, and the folks at Bloomberg know this much better than me, the market and economic behavior ultimately is psychological, right? And unless people feel comfortable going out and taking their daughters out into that movie theater or something, it doesn't matter if it's open or not. Yeah, and and Roger, this raises something that has been discussed in in the last several weeks and months has been this sort of arbitrary deadlines that that keep getting put on these um, bills going through and into and through Congress in regard to relief and whether, in fact, we should be making those decisions not based on arbitrary deadlines, but in terms of how people are doing and are they, as you said, prepared to go out and to contribute to the economy? Can they get back to work? Um, Rick, I wanted to ask you, given your expertise in all things Arizona, to share with me and, and everybody a little bit about what happened there this weekend and what that means for the future of the Republican Party. Of course, in Arizona, we've seen them move towards the Democratic side, and yet you have the party making these decisions over the weekend. Jeannie, uh, you, you've, you've actually hosted a, a really good show for this topic, because when you look at uh, Congressman Stiles' district. Uh, he represents the first district of Wisconsin, same district that Paul Ryan ran from. Couldn't find two more different legislators from the same district. Uh, and then you just talked about Rob Portman retiring uh, because of partisan gridlock, right? And it, he's not doing it because he wants to retire. He's doing it because he can't get anything done. Who are the likely successors within the Republican Party? Uh, not somebody who looks like Rob Portman, but Jim Jordan, probably Donald Trump's biggest supporter in the House of Representatives. And so you then dial that all the way to Arizona and you see in the front page of every newspaper this weekend, uh, Republican on Republican crime, right? I mean, the state party headed by a uh, Trump loyalist who's lost two out of two primaries when she ran for election and became party chairman, primarily because nobody really thought the party had any ability to win elections, um, uh, came after uh, the Cindy McCain, the, the wife of uh, 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 John McCain, and Doug Ducey, the popular Republican governor who won by 15 percent the last time he got reelected two years ago, and, and Jeff Flake, who retired from Congress primarily the same reason Rob Portman did, because he was tired of the infighting. And, 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 and they, they got censured by the party for their bad conduct. Yet these are the three families that represent all the statewide Republican victories in the last six years. And uh, so you really wonder, um, when are we going to see this uh, come out in open warfare? It's there now. 
And each of the Republicans that got censured basically said that the Republican Party in Arizona uh, doesn't affect them one way or another. Yeah, and I think I mentioned to you offline that the Cindy McCain tweet was was a classic one in my book. But um, I want to just mention um, that coming over the Bloomberg right now, the Senate has voted to confirm Janet Yellen as the U.S. Treasury Secretary. And we should note that she is the first female to hold this position in U.S. history. So Janet Yellen has become the first woman to head the U.S. Treasury. Um, it's a historic appointment um, for those reasons. And she is getting to work as President Biden was talking about earlier today on his Build Back Better pledge. But just to go back briefly, and I know we only have a few minutes left with you, um, Roger, I wanted to ask you, um, as you look at what's happening in the Republican Party, can you reflect a little bit on what's going on in the Democratic Party? Because while there is not the sort of, you know, Republican on Republican crimes <laughs> war that, that Rick is talking about necessarily, there is some tension there. And we're hearing some of it from the progressives who have voiced some concern even about the COVID relief bill that the president has put forward. How much of this do you think is going to be a challenge for Biden? Uh, it's just, it's a standard dynamic. I mean, that's the that's the tension that you have in both parties, which is there's a, a little bit more of a an extreme kind of wing in both parties that are pulling it in specific directions. And I, at least on our side of the aisle, I think that's healthy. I I, I just I have to say something about Arizona because I think the, the 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 ugliness of what happened there really has to be put under a microscope and examined for what it's doing to our civic life. We, when we look at how the last couple of weeks have unfolded, we, it doesn't take much to think of how a minor change in circumstances could have us in a much different situation. Imagine if Dr. Kelly Ward, that tribal leader who we're talking about here in Arizona, imagine if she was the secretary of state in Georgia. And imagine if President Trump called her and said, I need you to find these 11,700 votes. Does anyone doubt that Dr. Kelly Ward wouldn't go off and do whatever she was told to and asked to by the president to find those votes? And I'll end here on this particular point, because this, we've touched on bipartisanship here, and this, this is such a precious memory for me, even though it's a story I was told. I grew up working for John Kerry, and when he worked on the subcommittee on POWMIAs with John McCain, they went on multiple fact-finding uh, missions to Vietnam, as I'm sure Rick knows. When John McCain went to the Hanoi Hilton and went back into his old cell, there was one person that he asked to go in there with him. John Kerry and John McCain sat in John McCain's cell where he spent five of his six and a half years, and they sat in there in silence for a half an hour. That's who John McCain was, inviting a veteran and someone who protested against the war into the cell where he sat while that war was still going on and while John Kerry was in the streets trying to bring it to a close. The fact that someone could take a civic giant of that stature who has that much deep and real love for America and treat them in such a pornographic fashion and still be treated as a responsible member of society says something defamatory about all of us. Yeah, and, and, and I know, Rick, this is something that's close to Rick's heart as well. And as we're wrapping up here, Rick, I want to give you a, a minute that we have left to, to respond, because I know that, that it, it does bring chills to me as well, Roger. Yeah, we're really well said, Roger, and uh, and really two great Americans who were lions in the Senate. Uh, those those days are gone, uh, but I think there will be a fight to try and resurrect that, at least within our party. 
and we'll see where that goes. I, I would say kudos to the confirmation of Janet Yellen. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how long it'll take before we have Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. That's right. And I want to thank so much Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis and Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist and a principal of New Day Strategy. And again, Janet Yellen confirmed as the first female Treasury Secretary in American history. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.